lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender patients comprise a population susceptible to disparities in health care. Although the LGBT community has the same health concerns as their heterosexual counterparts, LGBT individuals may be at higher risk for other health problems due to various factors, including societal discrimination and difficulty accessing health care. But what about the health care of our LGBT pediatric and adolescent patients? I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and with me today is Dr. Robert Garofalo, MD, MPH, and full professor of pediatrics and preventative medicine at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. He is also an attending physician at Children's Memorial Hospital, and he's the director of the first and only Gender, Sexuality, and HIV Prevention Center at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago. Dr. Garofalo, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me. I first wanted to talk about the center that you have. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of your center and some of the work that you're doing there? Sure. It's a multidisciplinary center that focuses on both clinical care and a range of sort of academic subjects that really include sexual health, gender, sexuality, HIV prevention, and health disparities affecting sort of adolescent and young adult populations that largely are at risk of acquiring HIV. The center sort of does this through a variety of mechanisms, clinical care, research and evaluation, education, professional training, as well as some advocacy work, mostly tailored towards sort of high-risk adolescent populations that include, but that are not limited to sort of the homeless, LGBT adolescents, questioning youth. And our center really strives to sort of do our work internally at our academic center, but also to partner with like-minded sort of community-based organizations to kind of create an environment where clinicians, academics, scientists, and community health workers can really collaborate and design projects that are sort of significant for this population. What's your specific role at the center? So I'm the division head of adolescent medicine, and I'm also the director of the center. I started the center back in, I think, 2011, and it really was sort of organically created, and it grew out of both our clinical programs related to sort of HIV-positive youth and gender nonconforming children and adolescents, as well as a fairly robust sort of NIH-funded sort of research program dedicated largely to HIV prevention, but increasingly, hopefully, towards other disparities affecting this population. So this is something that you created, the center, I mean, with all of the resources that you were talking about, but um, I think that's quite fascinating. You talked about doing some research and and special projects that you all are involved in. Are there any particular projects or, or research that you'd like to talk about today? Sure. I mean, I think our research projects tend to be community driven and community engaged and kind of focused on hopefully either practical solutions to problems or things that really help young people get through sort of certain aspects of their lives. So one example is that we have pilot tested and have an ongoing study that looks at the use of text messaging as a component of hopefully helping HIV-positive adolescents successfully take their medications. We also have a project, the first ever project, that's an HIV prevention program and intervention for young transgender women that was written by young transgender women. It started with funding from the CDC, now has funding from the National Institute of Mental Health as a two-city efficacy trial that we're doing with the Fenway Community Health in Boston. It's a very gritty sort of youth-driven intervention that hopefully is going to reduce the incidence or at least the risk of HIV for a very high-risk population of young transgender women. We also have sort of a longitudinal study, the first 
one of the first longitudinal studies of HIV-negative young men who have sex with other men or young gay and bisexual men aged 16 to 20 that hopefully will follow them throughout their young adulthood to look at factors related to the acquisition of HIV and other uh, sexually transmitted infections. Those are just sort of a snippet of some of the research that we have, but it's we tend to be very practically focused and, and community engaged here with our research efforts. Right. Now, I, I think it's really great. I actually was looking at your website in the last couple of days, and I saw kind of some of the logos even that are assigned to the projects that you're just describing, and they do seem very specific to the groups that they're working with. And it's really, it is community engaged. You get that feel from the website. I really like that. Yeah, we have one, hopefully, that we'll get. I mean, this is, you never know with the NIH, but we do have one project that's a collaborative process with Children's Hospital Los Angeles, University of California, San Francisco, and Harvard Boston Children's Hospital, which would be the first national study of the impact of medical interventions such as pubertal blockers or cross-sex hormones on um, gender nonconforming children and adolescents. So that grant is currently pending at the National Institute of Child Health and Development, and we're very hopeful that that might receive funding because it would be a very important non-HIV-oriented study that I think would really move the field forward with regard to the medical care of transgender children and adolescents. You know, going back a little bit to some of the projects that you have that are focused on the HIV risks in the LGBT community, can you talk to our listeners a little bit about some of the risks, maybe some of the numbers or statistics with regards to LGBT youth and and HIV risk? The numbers are kind of hard to pinpoint. I mean, we do know that upwards of two-thirds of new infections occur among men who have sex with men. And overwhelming majority of those, at least increasingly, tend to occur in younger populations. So, you know, we do know that it's a significant health disparity that continues to affect at least young men and really men who have sex with men across the ages. Over the past probably five to seven years, I would say it's really the HIV epidemic has just increasingly become one that affects younger and younger ages. So it's really that younger demographic group, maybe ages 16 to 24 or 16 to 29, of young men who have sex with men, particularly those of color and particularly those in the African-American or black community that are increasingly becoming affected and represent the I don't know about the new face, but increasingly the the face of this sort of epidemic as we begin to combat it in now the third decade. So, you know, that's one group. Transgender women, I think, represent another unique risk group with regard to the acquisition of HIV, and their risk of acquiring HIV tends to be greater than even that of gay men. I don't think we know population-based numbers or population-based estimates because we don't necessarily have good epidemiologic data on transgender women that we collect in a systematic way, the way we would collect information on, say, males or females sort of in this country. I don't think we do a very good job of systematically collecting data on transgendered individuals, and that's going to be very helpful as we begin to define health disparities for this population. But for transgender women, we know that they face, you know, unique risk factors with regard to their acquisition of HIV. And it's complex. I mean, I think for transgender women, there's sort of a an odd or, or dual risk factor related to their gender identity. I think it's sometimes very hard for them to find sort of romantic or sexual partners that sort of validate their gender identity as women. 
And then they also face uh, oftentimes sort of economic hardship or marginalization with regard to sort of economic stability, which for a subset, certainly not all, but a subset of transgender women may lead them to things like commercial sex work or prostitution as a way of sort of seeking or gaining economic stability that can otherwise be elusive for them. So they, for transgender women, they face some really tricky risk factors with regard to HIV that very much contribute to the disparities we're seeing with HIV. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle, and I'm speaking with Dr. Robert Garofalo, a national authority on LGBT health issues, adolescent sexuality, and HIV clinical care and prevention. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the health disparities in general or health problems in general that we might see in adolescent or pediatric LGBT or questioning patients? I think to a large extent, they're poorly understood. We know that there are disparities with regards to things like HIV and sort of the acquisition of other sexually transmitted infections, but we don't necessarily have a good feel of whether there are health disparities in other areas like heart disease or depression or diabetes, things that we might otherwise look at health disparities in other populations, such as ethnic minority youth or males versus females. We don't necessarily collect good data on sexual minority populations, such as LGBT youth, to really fully understand where the health disparities may lie. So, you know, we tend to think of health disparities in this population across what I tend to call a spectrum of dysfunction which is, you know, sexually transmitted infections, homelessness, substance use, perhaps issues around depression or suicide. Yet I'm always careful to think that those, that spectrum, that spectrum of dysfunction in no way really captures the very strengths that this population has. You know, for, for in my clinical population, I think the LGBT youth that I see are some of the strongest, some of the most resilient, some of the hardiest young people that really navigate, I think, the difficult road of adolescence in some ways in a much more robust way than some of their peers because they've had to. I'm reticent to talk about sort of the health disparities that are often framed, you know, from within this perspective of dysfunction because I just don't think that it captures the whole picture of sort of LGBT youth that I think we're going to need to take a look at if we're really going to begin to combat the health problems that this population has. So I think we need to look at both the strengths and perhaps some of the disparities, if that makes any sense. It does. It's, it makes perfect sense, and it's quite inspiring, and I, I think it's appropriate. Absolutely. Let's shift the conversation to physicians. We've yeah. got a lot of physician listeners, and and taking what you've just said, you know, not just health disparities, as you've mentioned, but the strengths of our LGBT pediatric and adolescent patients. How can physicians, how can we better reach our patients? How can we better support our LGBT questioning adolescent and pediatric patients? What are your some tips for us? I think the first thing is that I often hear from doctors or nurses or providers at conferences that I speak at, they often come up to me and say, you know, I think I do a really good job of, you know, like reaching this population, but you know, none of my patients ever come out and tell me that they're like gay or lesbian. And I, I always think to myself, well, that's kind of the wrong bar to set. I mean, many young sort of LGBT patients have very good reasons for not necessarily coming out to their providers. So I, I wouldn't have that expectation that, you know, all your patients that are gay or lesbians are ne necessarily going to come out with their um, gender identity or their sexual orientation to a provider because they may, may have very 
you know, realistic fears about either inadvertent or advertent disclosures of their sexuality within the context of the healthcare environment and the implications that that could have on other aspects of their lives, including things at home, things with their families, things related to housing, things related to their own economic stability. So I think sometimes that's a false bar that we set, like having this expectation that our patients are going to come out to us. I do think that we should let you know, the general guidelines for pediatric and adolescent care guide us with regard to our clinical management. So it's not about their identity per se. It's really about, you know, their own individual behaviors or their own individual feelings about who they are. So, you know, for instance, it's not um, being a gay man per se that should necessitate a certain test for HIV or STIs. It's really your engagement in sort of some specific risk behaviors that should really guide our clinical practice, if that makes any sense. I'm sort of... It makes perfect sense, which is, you know, you're, you're advocating and you're talking about treating the patient as a patient and not, say, a, I guess, a defining them. You know, we should treat people according to our guidelines and what's appropriate for our patients. Yeah, I mean, I, I also don't think we should pigeonhole, you know, young people. I think sometimes, like, for instance, we may think if we have a young lesbian patient, for instance, it, it, there may be a tendency on clinicians to not ask that young woman about the need for things like, you know, birth control or, or some aspects of sort of sexual health. And yet it may be very important that at least periodically, you know, per our guidelines, we continue to ask our patients, you know, regardless of what they might have identified as six months ago or a year ago, at least general questions regarding their behavior to guide whether they might need some preventive health services around either STI testing or family planning. So it's important not to sort of buy into, say, stereotypes and where they may lead us. It's really important to take an individual history from each individual patient and then use that history to guide our diagnostic evaluation. This has been a great discussion about your center, about HIV and the LGBT population, about other health issues and, and some of your thoughts. You know, are there any other things that you'd like to add to the conversation? Any other final thoughts that you might have for our listeners? I think in general, we're doing a better job of conceptualizing and caring for sexual minority youth that identify as like lesbian or gay. I think the new frontier for pediatricians tends to be this area of gender non-conforming children and adolescents. You know, I think this is a new and evolving area. I think there will be centers popping up across the United States that begin to do this work. Ours is one of them now. But I definitely think that this is a, a relatively new clinical area that I think you're going to see pediatricians and clinicians needing to become more adept at dealing with. And I'm talking about, you know, children that present at younger ages with sort of gender nonconforming conditions that are gender nonconforming and may require an added type of clinical care that's sort of multidisciplinary, and that may occur at earlier ages. So, you know, we think of sexual orientation as an adolescent construct, but gender identity might occur and can occur at younger and younger ages. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Robert Garofalo, for helping us to advance our health in the adolescent LGBT community. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Cottle. You've been listening to ReachMD. And to download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you so much for listening.